Hello, this is the Performance Club Roundtable, our far more topical and casual podcast, certainly a lot more than the main show. It still deals with cycling performance, it's just a little chattier and it's a little more like us discussing and thinking out loud about cycling performance topics. The show is co-hosted by me, Cyrus Monk, a professional cyclist and cycling coach. Me, Dr. Jason Boynton, a sports scientist and cycling coach. And then there's me, Damien Roos, a professional cycling coach. Today we have our own topics, so we'll roll into those. Cyrus, what do you got for us? Yes, I've been here in in Europe uh, since uh, May, and that means I've managed to watch just about every stage of the Giro d'Italia and the Tour de France in the afternoons. And can, can I, I just cut to you think, off there? Yeah, go on. Um, I, I want to put on the record, I want to get um, an idea of how many countries this year you've raced in because uh, I think uh, it has to be a world record. US? Uh, <laughs> Australia? I think, yeah, during... Yeah, Australia, UAE, uh, Thailand, USA, and then Belgium, Ireland, Netherlands, and then yeah, a few other a few other training camps here and there. So I'm in Germany currently, but um, and then potentially Turkey. Yeah, so coming up for the rest of the season, so I've got to squeeze in some podcasts. The next two months is Turkey, Romania, Taiwan, and Malaysia. So, yeah, definitely not the traditional cycling countries, as they would be known, but uh, plenty of different countries. But, yeah, a, a fair few frequent flyer points among all of that. Mm. Yeah, I, I just had to get on the record because it's, it's amazing the spread of yeah, distances between these places and time zones that you've had to manage. Um, Jason yeah, and I have so, only had a couple of time zones this year. It's like floored us. But you're doing bike race as well, sort of. Surviving, it, yeah. So. If yeah. any, if anyone's noticed why that uh, the the podcast output has been a bit low, it's it's actually been tough for us to meet up because we're currently in. Well, Damien's just come back to Thailand from Australia, but uh, yeah, with being in Australia, Europe, and the US, it's pretty rough to find a time to meet up. So we've managed to squeeze one in here now. Yeah, but as I was as I was saying before, yeah, I'd, I'd been. In Europe, spending all my afternoons watching these Grand Tour stages and obviously at some point I was starting to think, oh, is this the best use of my time? I was chipping away at some coaching along with watching the, the TV in the background and I thought, okay, I've got to I've got to find something out of this rather than just mindlessly watching this bike racing. And then funnily enough, I actually missed the stage, which I'm going to reference here because I was racing a Kermis in Belgium at the time. But the one probably a lot of people have seen or at least seen the highlights where uh, Tade Pogacar finally cracks on a climb, which we haven't seen to that extent at any point in his career, I don't think. Um, and that was after just some relentless attacking from the Umbo Visma team throughout that stage. And obviously there's been a lot of speculation as to what's caused that. And there's yeah, many, many theories going around, but... Uh, what I'm going to present today is a hypothesis, which I, I came to the, the group chat saying I had a theory on it. And um, yeah, Jason correct, rightly corrected me and said it was uh, a hypothesis because by no means has it got to the point of being a theory yet. 
But I'm going to put forward that case today for where I think, basically where I think Grand Tour racing is going to go and where I think that's going to, the specialization is going to happen. And, yeah, I want to see what you guys have to say on this because there hasn't been too much into it to this point and I haven't heard that that many other people with this same hypothesis. So I'd be interested for your feedback and also if we have any feedback from the listeners as well. But basically what uh, I don't think I'm the only one that's predicting that it was a lack of fuel that's caused the, the big explosion. Um, it wasn't simply that he had a few seconds taken out. He lost minutes in the space of a few kilometres and was also passed by a lot of climbers that he climbed better than for the rest of the whole tour. So this is Tadej Pogacar I'm talking about. So why was the feeling an issue? Um, and I I want to get into more than just this stage, but I think um, the racing from all anecdotal evidence as well as if we actually look at uh, the times and the, the power outputs, the racing starts. So I want to put starts in quotation marks because uh, what we refer to in the peloton, you say the race starts at a certain point. Obviously, the race starts at kilometre zero, but you might roll along for 150Ks, four hours almost, before you actually start racing, it's called, where the it really kicks off. So there might be an easy break and then you roll along and then really start racing for the finish. So this now starts much earlier than it used to. A lot of this has been attributed to the TV following the whole race. There's more in it for smaller teams. Um, and I think there's also now just with all the advances in sports science and in training, riders can just ride at a higher intensity for longer. So riders may have been more conservative in the past and saving it for the final climb of the day, whereas now they're more inclined to attack further from the finish and these long-range attacks are becoming more and more common. So, And it's not so much just that the race is at a high intensity but consistent on these early climbs. There's actually attacks, so these high-intensity spikes, they're going to have a much higher energy expenditure and the majority of that energy has to come from carbohydrates. When you're attacking at five, 600 watts for, yeah, for minutes at a time, uh, early in the stage, that's got to come from carbohydrates. So... Then comes the question, how do you get this amount of carbohydrate in if you're going to be doing this for a whole stage? So there's an interesting study which I managed to find relatively quickly, which which fits in really well with this. And I'm going to read out every author on the study because I'd like to give credit to the people actually doing this research. But this was a study titled The Application of Daily Carbohydrate Periodization Throughout a Cycling Grand Tour. And this is published earlier this year by Nikki Strobel, Mark Quad, J. Mark Fell, Dominic Valerio, David Dunn, and Samuel G. Impey. So these guys from a variety of different universities and different teams have all collaborated on this, and it looks at the data from one rider in the Vuelta last year. So sample size of one, but it's got some pretty good stuff in here. We'll have the link to this in the show notes so you can check it out yourself. But basically for each stage of the race, it tells us their on-bike energy expenditure which is pretty easy to work out now with power meters. So just a quick rundown on the math side. The You can basically work out your output in kilojoules from multiplying the watts by the seconds. So if you're riding for one hour at, I think the number is around, it's 278 watts, then that will equal 1,000 kilojoules. And then the actual... Uh, 
energy expenditure within the body is going to be roughly four times that because we're about 25% efficient. So about 25% of that energy that's uh, produced in the cellular, cellular metabolism is going into the pedals. So yeah, you might think you have an efficient engine or some riders are described as efficient, but no one's really that efficient. A lot of it's just ends up being just heat, which is wasted. But but um, the the easy thing with that conversion, that 25% or, or four times, using four times as much is uh, four times a kilojoule is roughly one calorie or kilocalorie. So kcal or calorie with, cal with a big C, you might see it written as uh, if you're in America. But we... Basically, then it just allows you to do pretty much a one-to-one in the power output in the pedals to the calories that you are actually expending at a cellular level within the body. Um, and then that allows us to basically work out the on-bike energy expenditure. So this study has listed for every single day of the, the Vuelta last year, they've listed the on-bike energy expenditure. And it's pretty cool to look at that stuff because you've got some days there like a short TT, uh, 1,700 cows, which is still still obviously a lot. And then on the rest day, we're looking at 500 cows, so a much lower. And then mountain day, the biggest day there is 5,830 calories. So pushing 6,000 calories in, for reference, the average adult intake, I think, is recommended at 2,000 calories or a little bit over that for males. So... Yeah, you're looking at three times more than the average intake, just what you've put out on the bike that day. So we've got some pretty huge numbers there. And then also what this study lists is the carbohydrate intake. And the cool thing that they've listed here is where that's coming from. So whether it's coming from gels, whole foods, drinks, uh, concentrated drink mixes, and then, yeah, your total intake and your total uh, carbohydrate per hour. So there's some really good stuff in there to look at what exactly the pros are putting in. And uh, for anyone that's sort of been keeping up to date on the nutrition recommendations, basically now most cyclists and endurance athletes are aiming to get that 90 grams per hour. To get that, it has to be a mix of glucose and fructose, normally at a two-to-one ratio. So that's that's basically what's been reflected in what this rider's been doing and they've been achieving around that 90 grams per hour, sometimes a little bit over, which is interesting. I might touch on that in a little bit. But what's important to know about this 90 grams per hour uptake is it doesn't, it's not relative to body weight. So uh, what it's basically been hypothesized to be relative to is the length of the gastrointestinal tract and that's pretty similar depending uh irrelevant of your body rate body weight that is going to be roughly the same size the same length and therefore you're getting about the same amount of carbohydrate absorption per hour so basically if you're getting in 90 grams per hour this is going to equate to a one gram of carbohydrate provides four calories so this is going to only equate to 360 calories per hour. And if we're looking at an output of in these mountain stages of over 1,000 per hour, 1,000 calories per hour, uh, and this rider was 68 kilos, so a little bit bigger than your typical climber, obviously not big by any means, but 
if you're getting down to the mid 50s, then to write at the same watts per kilo, you're going to have quite a bit less output um, in in pure watts or pure energy expenditure, as would be recorded in what they've recorded in this study. So, if you are therefore requiring less energy expenditure, in theory, you're going to be requiring less carbohydrate intake than the bigger rider. So, what my hypothesis there is is that as the sports science and training keeps improving, we're going to see these high power outputs in the the 300 watt range for these long mountain stages, 300 watt average that is. So obviously a lot of time above that for five, six hours, which then, yeah, we're pushing the the 6,000 plus calorie expenditure. So if, if we're at that range and if you're at a bigger rider around the 70 kilogram mark, then you're going to have to be taking in a lot more carbohydrate to sustain that than someone that's maybe 15 kilos lighter who's going to just simply need less watts to ride at the same watts per kilo. So I'm hypothesizing that the bigger climber time trialist types like the the Tom Dumoulin, the Garrett Thomas, um, even, yeah, obviously Pogaccio is not big by any means, but he's certainly a lot bigger than Jonas Vingago. Uh, if we, I'm hypothesizing that those guys, for them to maintain the, the same watts per kilo, they're going to get to a point where they can't get enough carbohydrates in. And I'm I'm thinking that the days of the bigger climate time trials for this reason are numbered as we start seeing just races with such high energy expenditures. And I think we're going to be moving into a period where we see smaller climbers are the only ones that re- can really compete on these really long, really high energy output mountain stages. So interested what you guys think about this and and if you've had any thoughts on this um well i think it's one of the things to note is and one of the things i bring up with my athletes is the importance of carbohydrate loading and why that is important at a molecular level um and uh so my understanding (laughs) from from a cell bio kind of uh look at it is um so if you when you absorb these um carbohydrates into the muscle then they are stored in a long carbohydrate chain as opposed to if you are absorbing glucose from the blood into the cell they're going to be there differently during glycolysis so that first step of breaking down a glucose molecule when you rip that six carbon sugar into a three carbon sugar, when it's glucose, it takes two ATP to break that down. So you have to spend two ATP to get to start that process, right? And you get a net of two in the end. So you spend two, you get four. Yep. Um, however, if the, if you have a, um, chain of carbohydrates there if if you are break a a a three carbon uh, bit off of a six carbon think of it as a chain and one of the sides of that chain is already held in place and so you only need one atp so your net gain of atp changes you get quite a bit that's a uh, 50% increase. So instead of a, net, a gain of two, you get a net gain of 
three because you only had to spend one ATP when you had that long chain of carbohydrates in there. Glycogen? Yes, yeah. glycogen. Why? <laughs> Yeah, so you have this long glycogen chain and uh, you basically, instead of having to use two ATP to break open a glucose, you just need one ATP on the end of the that uh, glycogen state, uh, chain to, to, break that, um, to break that off. And then that increases your net gain. So that's one way to look at it. And then, but the other thing to kind of consider that I would, I don't have any evidence whether it makes a difference or not, but larger riders would have you would think would have larger muscles, obviously, and yeah. larger yeah. potentially livers, and they would have and blood, more blood. Um, so all of those areas can store. Yeah, and that and that's something I've I've listed down here. Is so, it enough to offset? Yeah, that that's the the big question. So the average stores are around 120 grams of carbohydrate of glycogen in the liver and then 500 grams in the muscles. And this is going to be relative to body size, unlike the absorption. So obviously a bigger rider, bigger muscles, more storage there. Yeah, probably a bit bigger liver, so a bit more storage there. So we're still talking like you're never going to get more than uh, if, if someone has has can debunk this and will say that I'm wrong, I'd I'd be happy to hear it, but I don't think you're going to ever get more than a kilo of, of storage of glycogen there. Um, and then if we're looking at that, that's, yeah. The, if you can get a, a kilo of storage, then you're going to be looking at 4,000 cals stored there. So I think, yeah, obviously that's something to look at is just really maximizing uh, storage for those bigger riders. And that's something that the study actually noted is that their biggest carbohydrate intake is in that post-race recovery meal, so straight after the race. And even if they're taking in, like some of the stuff they're taking in, during the stage they're taking in 500 grams of carbohydrate and then after it they're having like, yeah, another six or 700 grams straight in their post-race meal. So they're they're really smashing it down as much as they can. Um, And then it's just going to be really interesting to see whether that is enough for bigger riders to compete. And uh, it may be that it's possible for them to to manage all this, but it's just going to be much more difficult because the amount that they have to be taking in during a race and then after to refill these stores in comparison to a smaller rider who simply needs less watts to compete on the climbs, that there's going to be more cases of this like we saw in the tour where a bigger rider is just not realising it or making a mistake and then uh, it, it costing them the the tour or costing them a stage or costing them a, a classics race where there's also that really high energy expenditure. So I don't know if it's a unsolvable problem for bigger riders, but it's definitely something that they're going to have to watch for. And it's something that I know teams are already looking into quite a lot as well. The the interesting thing here is not so much, uh, not so much the underlying, um, physiology of what's going on but just overall the trend has been this kind of 68 kilo rider that can time trial yeah um for the gc leaders um it's really been leaning that way ever since enduring wiggins but then Froome or miguel enduring well enduring was just a beast yeah but then 75 kilos even even lance was 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 bigger um and then yeah like that the small, the small climber hasn't been been that. Uh, 
Pantani is the last one I can think of that was really dominant. But um, yeah, re- recently the big the big climber time trial has been the thing, and I don't know whether it's obviously there wasn't that many time trial Ks in the tour, and, and Jonas Vingergo nearly won the final time trial, so you can't say he's not a time trialist as well. But I just yeah, it'll be really interesting whether this trend of the bigger guys that can time trial and climb will stick around or or whether this hypothesis comes true that we start moving towards smaller guys. Because an interesting thing, thing to think about as well is Froome and this, you know, this uh, miraculous Giro stage that he did in yep. 2019, I think it was, where they were purposely, you know, the reason that he that was told by the team that he could actually perform so well is because they were um, managing his uh, nutrition so well during the ride. Um, So whether it does need that level of management, um, obviously that would have been planned and he was riding at his own pace. So it's very different to having attacks and on the fly trying to then refill um, yeah. spikes that and you had. You can also see that in the during the races, the riders, uh, I don't know if the listeners have seen the STEM notes now. Um, I remember STEM notes for as long as I've known have always either had the distances where the, the KOM points are or the sprint points are or back, back in the old club racing days, it was on day three of a tour, you'd ride on your STEM, the numbers that you had to watch and follow up the road. I don't think riders probably have to do as much of that these days because they've got the radio but now the stem notes is all when to drink certain bottles and with so many staff at these grand tours it's not unreasonable to say right at 115 kilometers i'm having this bottle with this amount and for the staff member to make sure that they're there and can give it to the certain rider that needs that amount um, and this is what this this study indicated is what's going on this is what uh jai indicated on his episode that similar to what's happening there both in the race and out of the race, just this direct prescription of exactly how much carbohydrate to have at what time during the day. And, yeah, I think that that aspect of riding, has, that, that's been a big change that I think a lot of riders have highlighted has made a huge difference in the ability to ride at these high intensities for so long now. All right, so are you ready for me to poke some holes in your hypothesis? Go for it. All right. Uh, actually, not me, but um, I think I might have posted this in the chat to you guys, but I came across the thread on the attack. I think, what was it? Stage 11 or 12, wasn't it? Uh, I can't remember for now. Um, but there was a, a thread that came out from Team DeRave. It was a, their sports science laboratory that works with cyclists. And um, I honestly think it's multifactorial. That's an easy out. <laughs> it's like there's just too many, too many factors involved to really pin down what exactly happened. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. I think this thread from these guys, and we'll post it in the in the episode description for sure, um, is probably one of the best things. I best hypothesis on what happened there, and um, and basically they're saying is is that Yumbo Visma performed like a masterclass in tactics using exercise physiology as a weapon. And, and how, and how they did this was this continual attacking by Yumbo Visma guys early, um, early on, they're saying, and I agree, I would have to 
I'd have to kind of look into. It'd be interesting to know the watts and all that kind of stuff that had, and look at the power output for the for what was going on to really determine if this is true. But they're saying is that those multiple attacks were basically burning off glycogen stores for uh, Pagetcha. And um, they kind of were poking holes in the, in the viral uh, hypothesis and, and also the feed feeding one. They're like, well, he's a pro cyclist. He's done this for years. It's probably not a feeding thing. They've nailed it so many times for this long. Why would it be different now? What has changed is the fact that they were uh, attacking them and depleting his muscle glycogen stores. Um, And so this is something that they, you can do in a lab. They do in the lab, right? You can have an athlete work out at such a hard intensity that it, um, burns off their carbohydrate stores and there's actually some good data out out there i forget the name of the paper but anyways so they depleted the glycogen stores at a lower altitude early in the stage and the replenishing of glycogen stores takes a long time but the decrease in muscle glycogen is going to be very uh, apparent once you get to some kind of environmental stress either heat or hypoxia so once they got to, what was it, 2,000 meters or something like that, once you have that, it's, it's all over. It basically is what, is what this threat is, is kind of asserting, is that if you burn through your carbohydrate stores, you, you're basically, there's a carbohydrate, the best analogy for the carbohydrate stores is, is that you, carbohydrate is the pilot light and it also is the kind of your afterburners yep. burning fat actually takes more oxygen. So if you're in an environment where the oxygen is limited, then you want to be able to switch over to those carbohydrate stores. Yeah. And even, even again, even if he was able to consume quite a bit of carbohydrate, well, the other guys are going to cons- consume car- carbohydrate in that same amount of time as well. And then it gets into that, what I was saying earlier, that uh, a glucose in your muscle cell isn't going to be as valuable, per se, as a, as, as a glycogen molecule, uh, just in terms of the, the ATP gain that we get there. So there's a, you, you can overthink it really quickly. Um, but right now, um, because I like physiology and it's a good physiological explanation, I, I tend to lean towards that. But it'd be interesting to really have an idea like you could probably dig into it more if you could see the power i power data and new uh critical power and like you know what kind of glycogen he he would have really burned off during those attacks but yeah What what do you think of that cyrus well it was one thing i had noted down there um not so yeah i'd I'd noted down obviously the the glycogen stores and and how much you can preload and then yeah that's it's something to note that it's not just it's not just that they rode the first climb really hard. It was those consistent attacks, them one tooing him, him having to make that many efforts. That yeah, it's obviously going to deplete carbohydrate stores, and that is yeah, as you sort of touched on, it's something that's really high cost to try and uh, replenish those stores while you're racing. The other thing is while he's following those attacks, there's yeah, there's opportunities to drink. There's not that many opportunities to eat, and 
yeah, it's easy to just say, oh, well, he, sh- he should have eaten more if he was attacking that much. It is, like, for him at, at that point, if he lets one of them go, then he, he can lose the tour. He obviously lost the tour either way. But it's it's a lot um, more difficult in, in that moment to just get that amount of fuel in that's required. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that I have I noted. I want to add something. Yeah, you go. Um, after those attacks, what did he do? He went to the front and rode hard for that entire second last climb. Yep. yep. Yeah. So that's that's and another thing that just compounds like not eating, burning yeah. fuel. Like if he's even close to threshold, he ups yep. his his burn rate by a, yep. a significant. Oh, sorry, not significant. A lot. A lot. A yeah. Lot. So, and then I'm sure there's people at home now that have been screaming for the last. 10 minutes ketones 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 and i haven't mentioned that yet and obviously there's another podcast which is quite popular that loves mentioning ketones all the time cycling podcast but um the uh with with the fats or ketones as a fuel source there's obviously a lot to show that they're being utilized within the peloton um these riders would be trying to maximize their fat burning but for these kind of intensities uh with those that just following attacks there's there's no way that you can't use carbohydrates of that kind of intensity. Um, yeah, fats and ketones can supplement that, but that's just going to burn through uh, so much carbohydrate at that. Like, yeah, I could use some some car analogy for picking different fuels, but I think yeah, the uh, at that intensity that they're riding, and as Jason also pointed to, the environmental stress, carbohydrates still the fuel that you want to be using. Once that fuel is gone. Yeah, you can work at a at a reasonable intensity with the others, but it's not going to be a race winning intensity. Um, I was just going to say, outside of the science stuff, and the reason that we're not a pro cycling racing podcast is um, ketones are not banned, but anybody that's in the cyclist union, whatever it is, they've made an agreement not to use them. Uh, it's why right. some teams that are a bit hush hush about it, uh, they don't openly talk about it is because they're they're doing it separately to that not not saying that they're in it and they're doing it but if they're not in that original union um then they're certainly doing it but keeping it quiet so there's there's a few of those types of things as well that are at play here but um what will be interesting i think for this hypothesis is to see how if we see this again in in um in the future because yeah definitely this is yeah this has only happened only happened once and yeah as you say it's high chance it's multifactorial um and yeah it's it's easy to just attribute it all to one thing we don't know what it is i think only a few people will ever know what exactly it was but uh yeah if we start seeing it again then that'll be really interesting i'll certainly be following yeah i I watched the highlights for that so i didn't see so I didn't get to see the whole thing, but um, the one thing for you guys um, tactically, do you think he could have? Do you think Pagacha could have handled it better? Do you think? Do you think there was an out there for him? Yes. Did he go cat four too? Is that <laughs> he could have been more conservative? Yes. Yeah, my thought was without seeing it, you know, unfold. One of the thoughts I had was, well, if he's such a good climber and he just would have sat in and waited and tried to pull back the gap, um, 
on the climb that mattered instead of getting instead of getting his, his guts yeah. punched in and then trying to do it. Um, would he have maybe not lost such an amount of time that he wasn't going to be able to recoup it? I'll um I'll answer yours, Jason, and then I'll uh, so a little thought experiment. We've we've just been hired by Team UAE as the sports science consultants, but I'm um, <laughs> race tactician as well. So if you're asking me the the tactics one, I'd be saying it's so easy in hindsight to say not to bother following Roglic, but uh, yeah, I'd I'd be saying at that point um, to just ride his own tempo, uh, which is going to basically maximize that use of fats as a fuel and ketones if he's using those as well um, and save some of that carbohydrate for the end, even if it means that Jonas is sitting in the wheel, uh, even if Roglic has a one-minute gap over the top, um, it just means that he has complete fuel sources. I'm sure he had full confidence in his ability that he was the best climber there, as you can see by him riding the penultimate climb on the front. So I think just being a bit more conservative then, but it's also the first time that that ever happened to him. So he had no reason to think that there was anyone that that, that would happen in a race um, if you're going on past experience. So I, can't, I don't think he did exactly the right thing, but I also can't blame him for, for doing it at that stage. If I was a, a DS, I wouldn't have been too hard on him. I just want him to learn from it. But my question for you, Jason, is I've just appointed you as the sports scientist for UAE. Um, and for some reason, despite knowing that nutrition isn't your strong point at all, I've asked you what should Tadej Pogacar be doing in the future um, to avoid this happening again, what would and in extreme environmental circumstances, which definitely is your area of expertise, what would you be advising for that for him in the future? I wouldn't know unless I saw what he's doing now. It really comes down to like build and I think I might have brought this up on the show, like so much of that kind of stuff, what they're doing at the pro level. It's one of those things where it'd just be interesting to creep and see what they're doing and and then kind of look at the individual aspects and then ask the questions of, can we do this better? What are the trade-offs? So without having like their the, the individual's plan in front of you and their approach and the thinking behind it and not only the plan, but what as what was actually executed, because um, those are often two different things. Um, without having that, it's hard to like build off of that. It's really it's like at that level, you, you really have to get into some specificity. But I think in terms of an approach from a perf- uh, performance staff from the outside looking in, for for me, how I would handle that, it would be really good it'd be important to have performance colleagues that were open to criticism and were not for themselves but their ideas and having everything laid out and scrutinized and realizing that that scrutinizing of what has been done or what we're planning to do is to the benefit of the athlete see that smirk damien (laughs) what are your thoughts is that is that a dig (laughs) no no, not not at all. Actually, we talk about this on the on the show. Like coaches can do things differently, as long as their intentions are right, and as long as they're not being willfully ignorant of things, like you know, and willing to change. And again, coming down to this, challenging their own approaches to things and asking themselves if they can do things better. 
and um so yeah yeah i got nothing else on on my one anything new in this episode? Awesome. This is a listener supported podcast. So we would be stoked if you supported us by becoming a member of the Cycling Performance Club and providing a monthly contribution. With your backing, we can continue our mission to deliver the best in cycling performance knowledge and practical advice to you and the greater cycling community for a better sport. Click the link in the show notes to support us monthly, or if you prefer to make a one-off donation for now, you can buy us a coffee or three, also by clicking the link in the description. Don't forget, Jason, Cyrus, and I offer coaching and consulting services for cyclists and teams. The links to our websites can be found in the show notes. And finally, don't forget, InfoCrank is offering an exclusive 20% discount on InfoCrank Road and InfoCrank Track power meters for our listeners only. See the link in the description and use discount code PERFORMANCE20, PERFORMANCE20 to get your upgrade to the most accurate power meter on the market. And with that, thanks for listening. This passes point now but i had i was going to make a meme with with uh pagetcha with like a little thought bubble at the at the tour de france uh podium shot or like I, but i did so much riding at zone two <laughs> but i didn't have good responses for the other riders. <laughs> like making jokes about like their training or something i didn't have enough insight but i just it would have just been a good thought thought bubble from him like <laughs> But that would have been only funny to like a f- small handful of people. Very niche. Very niche. Yes. Uh, yeah, but very niche. <laughs>